that you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ and opened our eyes to who he is. We're depraved, sinful men, Father, so there are so many different agendas in our hearts, and yet, because of the work of the gospel and of your Holy Spirit, we admit that what we long for most, amazingly, at the bottom of our hearts is the glory of Jesus. And as we come now to these sessions, we ask for the glory of Jesus. We ask for what our hearts, by the miracle of your Spirit, long for most, the honoring of your Son. Please, Lord, particularly late on a Friday evening as we're tired after the week, give us strength and help now just to work at that. And we pray this for our own sake and, again, for the honor and glory of your Son. Amen. Great. Well, everybody, I hope you've got pens and, and paper in front of you. Just the outline here, there are notes. I'd love you all to have that. And I say that because what the first thing I want to say is, is as I'm speaking now, and as we, we look at these, at these different subjects, as we recover the offense of the gospel now, um, uh, what, I, what I want to kick off with is, is turn you to Matthew 28. Can you turn to Matthew 28 as we start? Matthew 28. And verses, if you haven't got a Bible, if you could share, if you can jot that down, Matthew 28, Jesus on the Great Commission, verses 18, 19, 20. And do we see what he said here? So this is, this, just let's take this as a commissioning for us as well. It was said to the disciples, but we can hear its echo and, and hear its call. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So do you see the call there as we look there to go and make disciples, to those disciples, but on down to us? And therefore, just for your notes as we start, all of us should have a, this as our objective, that I become a disciple-making disciple of Christ. So I wonder if we can just think that through. I'm not just to be a disciple of Christ. So if you've come this evening and you're thinking, well, how will this help me? That is no good to me. What we've got to be is saying, how will this help me help others? So as we come tonight, just for your notes, jot that down if you can. I've got to be a disciple-making disciple of Christ. Therefore, as I come on this weekend, my objective is not so much to be a reservoir into which this stuff will flow. I hope it is helpful, but to be a river so here's the next thing I'm going to ask. I want you to write down the name of the person you're going to go through this with. If you're married, obviously it should be your wife. So that's the first person you've got to teach it to. But also another man who you're going to go through this material with. Because I'm not so much saying you've got to be a Bible teacher, but you do have to be a Bible sharer. And we're never going to get anywhere in terms of holding to the gospel with the offense that it is unless we're all involved. So, so can I just get that in place so far? So as we kick off tonight, I'm not so much, so much going to be a, 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 a reservoir. Hey, is that how you spell it? I'm dyslexic. Do you spell reservoir like that? R-E-S-E-V-O-I-R? -E -E is that it? Or is that, that right? I'm a dyslexic fool. Is that correct? So as long as we get it, I'm going to be a river. Okay? So what I've got to be is a river. It's got to flow through me. Now, that's the challenge. Now, particularly some of the brothers here who have been Christians a long time older than me, if you can hear everything tonight, you hear with different ears. If you hear going, okay, how am I going to teach this? How am I going to teach it? How am I going to teach it? So let's kick off with that. I've got to pass this on. Um, uh, this is not just for me this evening. That, of course, is unless you're someone who is who is trying to make a decision about the Lord Jesus Christ, in which case, thank you so much for coming. I'd love to chat with you particularly afterwards in terms of what I say. 
but that's what I've got to do. Let's just get another verse that puts this in context. Turn with me to, please, to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, the pastorals. Just to put this in place, so this isn't just for you. This is to be passed on. You're a disciple-making disciple of Christ. So let's turn on to 2 Timothy. In my Bible, which was printed in England, it's on page. Let's have a look. Um, uh, uh, here it is. This is my page number, 1195. I know that's no help at all, but anyway, there you have it. Okay, 2 Timothy. Flick in from the back if you can. Hebrews, then you get to Timothy. Now, it's very interesting, 2 Timothy 2. Again, hugely important verse this. Now, when you're teaching the Bible to other people, when you're sharing the Bible, the key is, jot this down, to ask the right questions. So as I'm going to be someone who then, who then shares this with other people, I've got to ask the right questions. How do you get the platform to ask the right questions? This is what you say to someone. You say this to them. Would you like to look at the Bible with me? Okay, that's what you say. Now, what can they say if you say, would you like to look at the Bible with me? What can they answer you? Yes, yes or no. Okay, so that's it. If they say no, fine. But they might say yes. So you've got the name of the guy down. If he's a Christian brother and you know him, hopefully you'll look at it. Hey, let's all just say that together, shall we? Let's rehearse it because it's the key to ministry. You ready? Would you like to look at the Bible with me? Now, can I just say as an Englishman, that was poor, okay? I'd like you all to say it together. Let's all say it, okay, ready? One, two, three. Would you like to look at the Bible with me? Let's have this half of the room say it nice and loud, ready? Would you like to look at the Bible with me? Okay, and the other half, are we ready? Would you like to look at the Bible with me? That's, now, I do that with non-Christians and Christians. Because the power's in the Word of God. I just say, do you want to look at the Bible with me? They can say no, or they can say yes. If they say no, fine. If they say yes, I've got, I've got it open. That's how you get going on a ministry. Just, do you want to look at the Bible with me? Let's have a look. I'm not so much a Bible teacher. That's a specialist gift, but I can be a Bible sharer. Two or three passages I've got. Let's have a look at them uh, uh, as we do that. Okay, let's have a look down here. Brothers, let's see. Okay, 2 Timothy 2 as we look down. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's last letter. He's in prison. He's going to be executed in the Mamertine. He's, liking, he's writing to Timothy. Everyone has deserted him. Do we see that? We, we see that. One Timoth 2 Timothy 1.15, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Philegius and Hermogenes. He's in chains for the gospel. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. But then have a look down. Do you see what happens here? Uh, verse 2. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, here's the question. Jot it down as I'm teaching this to other people. Here's the question. What are, do this in pairs, the five points of communication in that verse? So in that verse, that's a good question. It gets someone into the passage. In that verse, the, the gospel goes from someone to someone to someone to someone down the chain. What are the five points of communication? Just in pairs, see if you can see them. So 2 Timothy 2, uh, the, uh, verse 2. Have a look down at the verse, just in pairs. Can you see the five points of communication where the gospel goes as it's to be passed on? Have a look and see if you can see it, brothers. What are the five points?
Okay. Now, don't leave the fat Englishman stranded at the front here. What have we got in terms of the five points? Anyone, can anyone tell me? Anyone have a crack at that? Brother. To be you, me, many witnesses, faithful men, others. Yep, that's, that, that is almost there. Let's have a look. Should we just see as we look down? I mean, you, me, faithful men, many witnesses, others. That gets a number of them. Let's have a look down. What are they? What has Paul done? Well, the gospel has gone here. This is the five points. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. The gospel goes basically from God to Paul. That's the first point it goes, doesn't it? So God gave the gospel to Paul, from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to reliable men, and from reliable men to others. So those are the five points here that we've got here. The things you've heard me say, what is the communication? Well, it went from God to Paul, from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to, to reliable men and down to others. So that's what it goes down the generations. One, two, three, four, five. Now this is a great question. When you're looking at this with other people, this will be a great one. Okay, the moment you say, the moment you say, right, I am on for this, I'm going to be a man that passes on the gospel, what is the result in verse 3? What happens in verse 3? Exactly. What does he say? Do we see as we look down? Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The moment you say, I'm a gospel man, I'm hearing tonight, I'm going to be a reservoir, I'm passing this on, the response is, it's the soldier's life for you, my boy. Now you think of your soldiers at the moment in Afghanistan or in Iraq. Does their commanding officer walk in tomorrow morning and say, everyone happy? Everyone happy today? Does he say that? When you've lost, what is it, 4,000 men in Iraq? What does he say? What does the commanding officer say tomorrow morning as he walks in? He says, are you ready to do your duty? Are you ready to serve? Now, just, just looking at that verse, just as you read this with someone else, just as you look at it, jot down, if you would, at least four characteristics of a soldier's life, just as we get clear for this weekend and what we're up for. So just in pairs, think about a soldier's life, what a, give me four characteristics of it. Just in pairs, just do that. Have a, just see if you can have a crack at that, brothers. Just, just together, just say, okay, what is, what is a soldier's life like? Four things, just jot it down. Okay, what have we, someone throw something out. Brother, what have we got there? Give us a couple of characteristics. Uh, My eyes are so bad. What does that say? Duan. Duan, yeah. great. I look forward to new eyes and the new creation. They're hopeless. Anyway, on we go. Brother, what are the, give us. Yeah, he's prepared. Exactly. He's trained. It was very interesting, wasn't it? SEAL Team 6. Did you read? I read an article on SEAL Team 6 that, uh, 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 that, um, did the job on, on um, Osama bin Laden. Do you know that a number of them have been killed in training? That is how seriously they take training. It's interesting, isn't it? So we have to train this weekend.
if we're going to do this. He's prepared? Yeah? Go on, brother. Give us a couple. Sacrificial? Sacrificial, yeah. Yeah, there is a greater good, there is a greater aim, and he must sacrifice his life for it. Yeah? What else we got? He's obedient to his commander. It's just it's very interesting, isn't it? Look down at verse 3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, what do you think civilian affairs might be here? Well, it might be making money. I don't know what someone... What else. Just to say, civilian affairs, I mean, if I love... I do love golf, actually. But I love golf. Say, I, say uh, in 1940, when uh, the, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, an, L, I'm a, uh, an RAF pilot, 1940, um, uh, the Battle of Britain is going on in August overhead. I love golf. I'm playing golf that summer. Nothing wrong with golf, but it distracts me from the key task. And that is, that is, that is a civilian affair. So often it's a good thing, but it's not the best thing. And uh, it's a distraction from what I should be doing, which is winning the lost. And brothers, we've got to see that. Do you, know what, do you know what the real problem for me coming to America and staying in hotel rooms is? There are about 75 channels. In England, we only have five. I spend my whole life flicking through the channels again and again and again. I mean, it's marvelous. I do enjoy it, but it's absolutely hopeless in terms of time management. Pray for me, brothers, on that one. I've got to, pray my telly will break. That's what I need. I need it to break. Okay, endure hardship with us, like a, but no one involved, gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please Christ. So I've got to keep saying, here's for your notes, the good is the enemy of the best. The good is the enemy of the best. It's great to play golf, but if the Battle of Britain's on, I've got to think about that. And I've got to think about who I play golf with. Who do I spend that time with in terms of, in terms of winning them to faith? Anyway, let me just say that again. I know it's Friday evening, but brothers, we're not going to move forward here unless we're saying, right, I am for passing on the gospel. So in England, how do people opt out of Christian work? This is what happens. They're at a church, they're thoroughly involved, but they look around at their contemporaries who are looking to build heaven here, somewhere else. So what they do is they move house away from the church, and and their their dream is this, a rose-covered cottage in the countryside where they can just have an easy life. And time and again, that's what Christians do in England, to opt out of Christian work. They move away from a church, they don't get involved in another church. And you go and visit them, and actually they're just enjoying, uh, well, what Francis Schaeffer said Christians would do in 50 years' time when he, broke, when he wrote his book, How Then Should We Live, in ni- the 1960s. You know, uh, personal affluence, personal peace and affluence. That's what people live for, personal peace and affluence. And it'll never happen to me if I'm for the gospel. It'll never happen to me. By the way, can I just say, I know a lot of uh, you men here are here after an exhausting week. So you're here. The fact you're here is you're soldiering. So I appreciate that. Thank you for coming. Right, let's, let's go on then. But could, would you like to look at the Bible with me? I'm going to get the Bible open. Everything I hear this next 24 hours is about being a river, not a reservoir. How am I going to pass this on? I've got the guy's name down there who I'm going to meet on and pass this on to. Uh, that's what I've got to do. So I'm, I'm actually going to be a Bible sharer as well as my wife and kids if I'm looking to do that. Okay, with that in mind, let's now, as we look at the offense of the gospel, what I'd like you to do in pairs is just do this. Here's the question. What stops people doing evangelism? In our churches, well, let's, let's just get this in pairs. Let's get five or things, six things written down. So again, just in pairs. Now, that's a great question to ask when you're training people. What is it that stops us doing evangelism? So if you can join that question down, brothers, if we can just give me four or five applications of that. What stops us doing evangelism? By the way, can you put your hand up if I'm speaking too fast? 
Okay. Okay, brother, that's very helpful. What stops us doing evangelism? So can we all just get it just, just in pairs? By the way, the British, you know, ever since we lost the empire, we don't talk to our neighbours. I think you're more sociable here. Can you just introduce yourself if you don't know? If you don't want to do that, say, look, I don't talk to people, just say that to them and you'll just potter on yourself. But if you do, that'd be good. So just introduce yourself and let's get this written down. What stops us doing evangelism? Just in pairs, if we can do that, that'd be great. What is it that stops us doing evangelism? Okay, great. So again, when you're looking to do this session on training, what stops you doing evangelism? Maybe you might do this in a group, maybe with one guy, just to get it out there. If we don't listen at the start, we don't know where people are at. So what stops us doing evangelism? Let's just give us some um, illustrations. Josiah. Persecution. Persecution, that's right. Fear that we'll get persecuted. Okay, now, when someone says that, please jot this down, Matthew 10, 17, Jesus says to us, I send you out as sheep among wolves. In other words, you are going to get persecuted. If you decide you're going to pass the gospel on, you're going to be like a sheep among wolves, says Jesus to his disciples, but it's passed on to us. Just a couple of things on this. Could you please write down the number of Christians you think got martyred in 2004? Just jot down the figure. How many do you reckon got martyred in the world? Matt's going to pick this up in the seminar. What do you reckon the figure is? Just jot down. Let's all just have a guess. How many martyred? Brother, how many do you reckon got martyred 2000? Yeah, what? It, uh, 
Half a million, well, the number was 167,000. 167,000 Christians were martyred in 2004. That is one every three minutes, 20 an hour. So when Jesus says, I send you out as sheep among wolves, when he says, take up your cross and follow you, to follow you, I mean, that, that is, those, that's what's happening to our brothers. So I've just got to get that in place. Now, so the first thing is, I've got to acknowledge that I am going to get hurt if I take this message out. I am going to get rejected. Now, the next key word to write down, therefore, as we think about this rejection is, where is my identity? I've got to know where my identity is, and my identity has got to be in the gospel. So in other words, whether you accept or reject me does not make me more valuable. What makes me valuable is that Christ died for me. And that mustn't be academic, that has got to be in my heart. So what makes me valuable is Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I am not going to keep telling people the gospel when I get whacked back unless I believe that. That's the key. So the question is, as I, as I decide to take the gospel out, the question is, am I prepared to suffer and where is my identity? If I'm prepared to suffer, then the gospel will go out. So we speak, we serve, we suffer. We speak, we serve, we suffer. That's, the, that's what it is. We speak, we serve, we suffer. That's the, that's the Christian life. 167,000. We don't even, I mean, in, in Britain, we don't even know about this. I mean, we, we, you know, it's amazing the freedom we have for gospel proclamation. It's amazing. Amen. But it's not usual. So that's the first thing, okay? So, so, so here I am. Okay, here I am, and I'm here, and I'm going to jump off into gospel. I'm going to jump off. Here are the rocks down there, rejection, whatever it is. But as I jump off, the first thing I've got to be held by is the grace of God. I've got to be held by grace as I jump. What else? What else um, uh, 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 stops people? What, what else stops us communicating the gospel? Not I'm not equipped. I don't know what to say. Thank you very much. I don't know what to say. So please, let's say this together, okay, when it comes to being equipped. Ready? Here's a little phrase to jot down to teach. It's not in the Bible, but it's very helpful. The best spontaneity is rehearsed. Okay? The best spontaneity... Let's say it together. Ready? The best spontaneity is rehearsed. So what I've got to do, there are three levels of speaking. Level one of speaking is self-focus. Do you know what it's like first time you stood up to speak or you're trying to, and you sort of think... Oh my, oh my, I'm trying to say, and you're having a panic attack. Have you had that? I mean, you just, you just don't know what to say. Level one is self-focus. Level two in speaking, in terms of getting it out, is message focus. Have I got it right? Am I clear? But the third level we're trying to get to is audience focus, where I can forget about myself, I'm on top of what I've got to say, and I can give myself to you as I speak and as I listen. And that takes practice. So again, in terms of training here... Here we go, just in terms of training ourselves on evangelism as we're doing this. You see it as we train, then you do it, then you get feedback, and then we repeat it. Okay? You see it, you do it, feedback, repeat it, and that is how you get better at speaking about the gospel. So we've got to go into, here's the phrase, the training simulator. 
If you've ever done any evangelism training, we will, we will be, you just have to practice a bit. And we'll, we'll be doing a little bit of practice this weekend. At that point, some people are thinking, I'm not coming back tomorrow. Let me just be honest with you. We're going to be doing some simulated training tomorrow. Okay, so can I tell you that now so you can have perhaps a nicer weekend doing something else if you want to. But tomorrow we will be training so that, here's the next thing, you, cr you just practice crossing the pain line in terms of getting the Bible open. You practice it, so we practice here before you do it. Okay, but there is a pain line to cross and we're all going to work at it. We all have a butterfly in our stomach before we speak about Christ. Some of us do it anyway. But we're going to practice that. I've got to practice getting over that pain line. But thank you, training. I've got to, I've got to you know, what do I say next? How do I put this? How do, I, how do I practice that? What else? What else stops us saying stuff? We don't believe it's powerful. Brother, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. We don't believe this is powerful. Let's have a look, please, at a key passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, this is the most important passage on evangelism in the New Testament. I was taught by an Australian preacher called John Chapman. Let's have a look at 2 Corinthians 4. And as we look down... We'll come back to this tomorrow, but verses 5 and 6 in 2 Corinthians 4. Okay, now here's the question. Can you answer this in pairs? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. Who is at work in the work of evangelism? So just have a look down. Can you just answer that in pairs, please? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. Who is at work in the work of evangelism? Two Corinthians four verses five and six. Just have a look down. What happens as the gospel goes out? Just those two verses. Two Corinthians four five and six. Verses five and six. Who does what in the work of evangelism? Okay, can anyone tell me, just for those two verses? Who does what? Who does what, as we look at it? My brother. Which verse is that? You're right. What verse describes his work? The Holy Spirit is at work, brother. You're quite right. Which verse? Which verse describes the Spirit's work? Can we see? Verse 6. Do you see what happens? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Where does it say in the Bible, let there be light? Where's that? So the God who in Genesis 1 says, let there be light, made his light shine in our hearts, takes the power that made the world, shines that into my heart, and gets us to see, do we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ? In other words, God takes his Holy Spirit, the power that made the world, he shines it into my heart, for your notes, he recreates my heart, and he does a miracle, he does a miracle, God, and he causes me to see, do we see the glory of God in the face of Christ? He causes me to see that Jesus is God. So in evangelism, God does a miracle, recreates my heart, and gets me to see Jesus is God. So God, here's the phrase, just to jot it down to get this clear. Verse 6, God opens blind eyes. That's what God does. He opens blind eyes. Who else is at work in the work of evangelism? We are which verse? Verse 5, what do we do? We don't preach ourselves, so I'm not to talk about me, we preach Christ. So my job, 
Verse 5 is we preach Christ. Verse 5, we preach Christ. Okay, so that is where the power is. That is the methodology for evangelism. We preach Christ, God opens blind eyes. Now, what does this mean? Let me just give you a couple of applications. We'll pick it up again tomorrow. What it means is this. If I meet a guy tonight, say, and I say, what's your testimony? How did you come to faith? And you say, oh, nothing really. I just grew up in a Christian home. What do you then do in the light of verse 6? If someone says, well, I just grew up in a Christian home, what do you do? It's very simple. Brothers, this is what you do. You take the person outside and you headbutt them. That's what you do. Look at verse... Why are you a Christian, verse 6? You're a Christian because God opened your blind eyes. He did a miracle when you were dead in transgression and sin. If you think you're a Christian because you had the privilege of a Christian home, brother, repent. You are a Christian because God took the Holy Spirit, he opened your blind eyes, and he caused you to see who Jesus is. And he did it when you were a little one, perhaps. But it is a miracle alongside the power that made the Grand Canyon. That's what was required. Do you believe that? That's what happened. And that's where the power is. So we don't think there's power. Well, this is our methodology. We preach Christ, God opens blind eyes. One other thing, because we've got to move on. One other thing. Any, any other feedback people have got? What stops us? We don't think it's powerful. We don't know what to say. We're afraid of rejection. Any other things that stop us? Sorry, brother? We fail to engage with people. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, how do we, how do we reach across and engage people? We'll look at that again tomorrow. Brother, one thing Yeah. So we need God to open our eyes up so we'll witness for him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We need to see these issues. There are lots of ones. We might want to pick up some tomorrow. I've just got to move on because I've only got a few minutes left. Okay, everybody. Let's turn on to Romans 1, please. Romans chapter 1. Because uh, uh, all these things, as we're trying to get the gospel out, all these things, I'm going to look at four things that people find wonderful and offensive about the gospel. Because how do, we then, how do we then mobilize ourselves to preach Christ, to get it out, when we do face opposition? Here are four great truths that are a great offense to people and absolutely wonderful as well. So four Gs for you if you want to write them down. Here's the first G in terms of getting these into, into ourselves and understanding that they are profoundly offensive to people as well. So four things that are offensive and wonderful. First of all, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, have we all got that? Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So number one, what's the first thing that people find incredibly offensive about the gospel? Here's the first thing, grace. Grace. It's wonderful, but it's offensive. And let me, let's remember the story here. As you're training others and you're teaching this to others, tell the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, 1515, he's a, he's, a, he's a monk in Germany. I know he said a nun. He's a monk. He's a monk in Germany. And he said, hear this out, I hated God because God demanded a righteousness from me and all I had in my own heart was wickedness. 
And Luther said, I hated God. And then reading Romans 1, 17, he had what is famously known, please drop this down, as his tower experience. And in the tower, he realized, amazingly, that God did not just demand a righteousness from him. What else did he realize? That God gave a righteousness in the gospel. And Luther suddenly, so, so Luther said, how can you be sumul, sumul justus et peccator at once justified, righteous, and a sinner? And the answer is the gospel. So here's the heart of the gospel. We, we might have to chat about it. How can God be right and make me right when I'm wrong? How can God be righteous and declare me righteous when I'm wrong? Now, the Roman Catholic Church came along and they said, no, no, let me tell you how you get right with God. God gives you some righteousness and you supply some of your own righteousness. And Luther said, no, no, even my best deeds are splendid vices when I look at the motivation for them. So, so, so uh, 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 let me give you the famous illustration. I'll put it in modern-day terms that Luther used, and you'll see the offense of this. Luther said, uh, let's imagine that Prince William actually did this three weeks ago before the wedding. Let's, pre let's pretend he did this. Prince William walks out of St. James's Palace in central London. He walks down to Soho, which is the center of the sex trade in London. He walks into Soho, Prince William, and much to Kate Middleton's chagrin, to her annoyance, he walks into Soho and he finds a woman there and she has needle marks up and down her arms. Her language is disgusting. She is utterly disheveled. There is a stink of alcohol around her. There are clients, men, who have been using her. There are needles. And Prince William takes this woman by the hand and he says, you're coming with me now to Westminster Abbey and we're going to get married. And he takes her to Westminster Abbey, this prostitute, and he marries her, and then he says, now, you're coming to St. James's Palace to live with me as my wife forever. And that's the gospel. Amen. And in a little book called The Freedom of the Christian, in a little book, Luther said that, and of course, people hate that. Because can I say in that illustration, you are not Prince William. <laughs> no, such is our total depravity. Such is our total depravity but God has not only rescued us and justified us, he has adopted us. Now, brother, brother, here's the question. Is that truth two things for you? If it's not, we're in real trouble. Two things. That has got to be both true and wonderful. That has got to be both true and wonderful. So I am given this gift of righteousness. Here is a book, and it's uh, Rico Tice. Uh, 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 here it are, the, the uh, memoirs, the confessions and memoirs of a justified sinner. Now, in this book is everything I've ever done wrong. Here it is. I wonder if you can see. Can you see what, the, you can see it all? There we are. Every page is blank. Every, this is everything I've ever done wrong. Every page is blank. Because at the cross, two things happen. Number one, I am forgiven. But secondly, I am given the righteousness of Jesus. I'm not just forgiven my sins. I'm also given Christ's righteousness. So Gresham Machin, the Westminster theologian, on his deathbed, his last words were, having worked himself to death for the gospel, died early at 55, in his labor for the gospel, Gresham Machin, on his deathbed he cried out, I thank God for the obedience of Jesus. Because he knew as he stood before God, he would be covered by that obedience. Now, when you're coaching someone else, this is the question I want you to write down for them. Here's the question. Write down, this, the, what's the answer to this question? One word answer, how does God feel about you today? That's a one word answer. Now I want you to write down the one word answer to that. How does God feel about you today?
What's your one-word answer to that? How does God feel about you today? Ask them that question. How does God feel about you today? Okay, and the answer is delighted. God is delighted with you. Why? Because he is delighted with Jesus. And you are relating to God through Christ's performance, not your own. Brother, here's the issue. If when I said, how does God feel about you today, you looked at your own spiritual performance, if you, looked at how, if you said, have I read the Bible this week? Have I witnessed? What, how have I sinned? If you looked at your own spiritual performance, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is that God accepts you separate, independent of your performance because you trust in Christ's performance. It's, it is staggering. It is staggering. How, do you do that? Do you live? Do you live? Do you, so, so when I come to Christ, here's the issue. When I come to Jesus, okay, here's the issue. I don't just come by the gospel. So here is God, and here I am, and I come to Jesus by the gospel through the cross. Actually, no, I also, I live by the gospel. So now what happens is time and again is we live by our own performance. So as I asked you that, how does God feel about you? You started thinking about your own performance. You haven't understood the gospel. That's other religions. Amen. Do, do, do. With ours, it's done. That's it's right. done. You have been taken home by the king. He has adopted you. He says, come and live with me, even though you are far worse than a prostitute. Amen. You're far worse than a prostitute in your righteousness and your pride and the rest of it. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, he used to say to people, are you a Christian? And if they replied, yes, but not a very good one, he'd know they weren't converted. Today, are you relating to God through Christ's performance or your own? Oh, it's such a relief, the gospel. And it means that as God sees me, as he sees me, I am covered by his righteousness. And that's what drives it forward, the gospel. And of course, people who uh, want to relate to God by their own performance find this absolutely disgusting. They really do, because they, 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 want to actually, they want to actually control God by their own performance. But it's the gospel, and it's the most amazing thing. Let me read you a little quote here. Is this at the center of your identity? That's the question. What Christ has done, not what I do. But here's, uh, as we just finish this point, here is, um, here is a, a, a bishop who's been dead a long time now, Alf Stanway, one of about four converted Anglican bishops, but he was converted. Here he is. Okay? <laughs> And he said this in the 1950s to some men entering the ministry in Pittsburgh. He said this, If other people knew you like God knows you, all your faults, all your vain thoughts, all your sins, all the things in your heart, all the wrong thoughts you ever had, would they trust you with the kind of work God trusts you with? Here is the supreme confidence that God has in his own grace. He'll take the like of you and me and give us the privilege of being his saints. So, brother, this Friday evening, you're exhausted from a week, but is this both true and wonderful? That's right. Absolutely crucial. And is it at the center of my identity? Okay, on we go. Secondly, the second thing that is absolutely uh, uh, offensive to people, we've got to get this in place, is Gehenna. Gehenna for your notes. Gehenna. 
Let's pop it up there. And uh, Gehenna was um, a Greek word. It's used in the New Testament. Um, uh, uh, actually, I only know two Greek words. The first is Gehenna. The other is kebab. They're the only two I've got. But literally, Gehenna was the stinking public garbage dump southwest of Jerusalem. Um, uh, offal and filth were flung there. Even the carcasses and bodies of, of criminals were thrown there. Left, const, fires were kept constantly burning to dispose of rotting material. And the Lord Jesus Christ used the word Gehenna. This is the issue to describe those who would pay for their sin themselves if, the, if he himself had not paid for them. So just in terms of the offense of the gospel, Jesus is the theologian of hell. He speaks about hell. And again and again and again, he teaches us that there is a place called hell and it is a sphere of punishment. So that is the issue. And at the heart of the gospel, for your notes, it's being saved from hell, through the cross, for heaven. That's the heart of the gospel. I'm saved from hell, through the cross, for heaven. And in Romans 1, if we can just look down, what then is my response to this teaching about hell? Can we see verse 14? I'm bound both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. Now that's, that's called I am in debt. Now there are two ways in which I get into debt. The first is this, okay? Here is a $20 note, and I give it to, and Josiah lends it to me, and I've got to give it back to him. That's the first way of getting into debt. But the second way of getting into debt is this. Josiah gives me a $20 note, and he says, could you pass it on to David? And until I pass on this note, I am in Josiah's debt and in David's debt, and that is the debt here. I am in debt to people. Now, there are two questions when it comes to hell. Question one, do you believe it? And secondly, do you love people? Do I believe it's true? And secondly, do I love people? But a great question to ask is, where will this person be in 100 years' time? So as, I'm, as I meet people, I've got to see that the success or failure of any life is what you do with Jesus, because he is at the head of history. Amen. He is at the head of history. And just for your notes, guys... Just for you to go away and look at before tomorrow morning. Can we just flick up the, the, uh, the verses here? Just to see Jesus, the theologian. Can you just jot those down, please, and go away and look at them, please? This is Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 5.22, Matthew 5.29 and 30. Matthew 7.13, Matthew 8.10 to 12. Matthew 10.26-28. Matthew 13.42. Matthew 13.49. Matthew 18, verse 8. And just go through that, and can I say again that Jesus is the theologian of hell. Now therefore, in that in light, and let's close with this now because we're, uh, we're moving into groups. Can we turn, please, as we look at this, to Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew 7, and see what Jesus says. He is the one who warns of hell. And see what Jesus says. Turn, please, to Matthew chapter 7, in terms of the offense of the gospel. Matthew 7 and verse 13. Matthew 7 and verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. 
but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to hell, and only a few find it. Now, the road to destruction, John Stott says in our culture, is defined by two things. Tolerance and permissiveness. Tolerance, you can do as you please. You can think as you please. Permissiveness, you can do as you please. And the road to destruction, Jesus says, is defined by that. But Christians are people who understand that God has said no. But there is a road to destruction. Do you believe Jesus is telling the truth as he speaks of it? Now, what is fascinating about this road to destruction, can you see, is what happens in verse 15. Why does verse 15 follow verses 13 and 14? Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are wolves. Now, what does a false prophet do? He comes in sheep's clothing, so he will look like a pastor. He'll look like, a sh- he'll look like um, a, 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 a someone who can be trusted. A sheep. Someone who's, you know, a sheep is cuddly. You can, it's not a wolf, but a, a, a wolf puts on sheep's clothing. But what will he do? You see, what he'll do is, uh, uh, by the very nature of a false prophet, is he will contradict Christ's teaching about the road to destruction. That's why it follows it there. Watch out for, for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are wolves. You can tell them by their fruit, but actually they will deny the road to destruction is the road to destruction. Therefore, what I must expect in terms of the offense of the gospel is I must expect pastors within the church to deny this. That's what the false teacher will do. So flicking back, let me just read this to you, Jeremiah 23, which I'm, I'm sure that Matthew had in mind as he spoke this. Let me just read this to you, Jeremiah 23. This is what we read. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you, They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouths of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you'll have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purpose of his heart in the days to come. You will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they've run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they'd stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. In other words, at the heart of a false prophet, he says there is no road to destruction. At the heart of that. So, your criteria for looking for a pastor, your criteria for being for a pastor is, is this person teaching wrath and hell? Are they teaching wrath and hell? Are they teaching that there is a road to destruction? And if they're not, they're a false prophet. So if we look across to Rob Bell and his book, uh, Love Wins, he is a false prophet. Why? Because he refuses to teach that there is... He, he said there's no road to destruction when there is a road to destruction. Um, uh, 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 what, what have I got to do, uh, just as we close now, what I've got to do is warn people there is a road to destruction. Um, I, um, I played rugby at Oxford University, and when I played rugby there, I, I played uh, um, for the Oxford team, and there was a guy that I played with called Ed. And uh, one day I gave him a tape of a sermon I'd done on John 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as I gave him this uh, sermon, he took this tape. It was in those days of tape recorders sort of 15 years ago. He put it in a tape deck and one evening played it to Chris and Ben and Dave who were all in the rugby team with him. And in this sermon I said, either we pay for our sin on, on, uh, uh, in hell or the Lord Jesus pays on the cross for us. 
or the Lamb of God pays. But someone's got to pay for sin. There is a place called hell. Anyway, as Ed played the tape, there was another guy called Dave who was uh, in the rugby team as well. And as he listened to the tape, he got more and more angry. And at the end of the tape, he said this. He said, Rico's not my friend. And they said, don't be ridiculous. You play rugby with him. You play golf together. You room together on rugby tour. He said, no. He said, he's not my friend. And they said, well, why do you say that? He said, if that's what he believes, the fact he said nothing to me means he doesn't care for me. And Ed, the guy I lent the tape to, rang me up and said, look, I'm really sorry, Rico. I played that tape to Dave, and he's really upset that you've not spoken to him. He says, if you cared about him, you'd have spoken to him. Do you know, it changed my life, that phone call. You see, Dave understood that I had a debt. He said, if that's what you believe, Rico, why haven't you told me? And I didn't tell him, because I think I was afraid to tell him. I was afraid of his rejection. So the issue was, I cared more about what he thought of me now than of what God would think of him on Judgment Day. I care more of what he would think of me now than God would think of him on Judgment Day. Well, again, there's one person, there's one guy that you're going to train, and you've put his name down. As we close now, can you write down the name of another guy that you need to speak to about the gospel? Let's just jot down someone's name, and we'll look tomorrow about how we share that. But who's someone you need to tell the gospel to? Just jot down a name. It might be a relation, just somebody, and and you say, you know what? I owe them this debt. I've never spoken to them. They might reject me but I need to speak. Let's pray. Who's that person? Let's think of that dear person. Oh, Father God, we, um, we thank you very much for opening our blind eyes. We thank you for showing us what happened at the cross. We thank you for those who told us. But we pray now, Lord, as we come to this weekend on evangelism, we pray that you would Please, Lord, please give us uh, the ability to be equipped and the courage to cross the pain line and to speak. And we think of this individual, we hold them up, and we ask, Lord, that as we speak to them, you would open blind eyes. Oh, Lord, we cry to you for the miracle. We pray for spiritual hunger. But, Lord, we pray that you'd make us soldiers. We pray that you would really enable us to work out what it means to, to labor in the name of the Lord Jesus and to, 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 to be equipped and to be trained and to face this hardship of gospel work. Amen.